Hello, everyone, and welcome to a broadcast, the podcast brought to you by the Journal of International Affairs at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, your premier source for exploring the issues of global importance. My name is Chris Smith, your host for our broadcast, and today we'll be talking about disinformation campaigns with Captain Margaret Smith. Captain Smith is a United States Army cyber officer with over 18 years of experience. Over the course of her career, she has taken on the role of Senior Watch Officer, Cyberspace Operations Planner, Offensive Cyberspace Mission Commander, and is currently a Scientific Researcher at the Army Cyber Institute and Assistant Professor of American Politics at West Point. Her current research includes disinformation and operations in the information environment within the context of great power competition. To note, the views Captain Smith is presenting today will be her own and are not representative of the United States military or government. Maggie, welcome to a broadcast and thank you for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Well, I know I'm very interested in this topic and I'm sure our listeners will be as well at Columbia. Um, but first, before we kind of begin, can you explain and define like misinformation and how is it different than disinformation? Yeah, these are really important terms to get right. And actually, I'd throw another one in there, malinformation. Um, and I'll get to that one last. But misinformation is really information that is false, but it's not created with the intent of causing harm. So it's like somebody posting an article or sharing an article that they've seen haven't followed up on, haven't verified whether it's true and kind of benignly shares it um, and it ends up being false. Disinformation on the other hand is information that is false, but it has a malicious intent behind its sharing or its propagation. So it's deliberately created to cause harm to a specific person, a social group, an organization, or even a country like we've seen in the United States. So, for example, you could imagine that a competitor, like in the corporate world, could purposefully post false statistics about a competitor's product. Um, And that kind of false information is intended to directly do harm to their uh, competitor. And then finally, malinformation is really information that's based on reality, uh, but is often used to inflict harm upon the same types of people um, or same types of categories like organization, country. And so malinformation, I would say, is something um, good example of that from present day is this resurgence of the bioweapons narrative that is coming out of Russia and China, um, both in respect to COVID as well as uh, the Ukrainian conflict. So those are my three definitions that I like, um, and a lot of people will use them interchangeably, and I think the key terms are really mis and disinformation. Mis is benign, not created to cause harm, kind of inadvertently shared misinformation, and then disinformation has a malintent behind it. It's, it's intended to ruffle feathers. I'm kind of glad you, we start off with those definitions just because I remember I was always told that words have meaning and using the proper word to define something can, can change the context of it in and of itself. Yes, 100%. And we see that um, all the time in politics. Um, what Jen Psaki says as the press, you know, as the press um, person for the Biden administration is really important. People hone in on those words. And so, um, you know, language is key here. And I think the really fascinating part about this time in history is that there are words that are so inflammatory that if 
they're included in any sort of dialogue that people are going to pick up on those words specifically. And um, I mean, we've seen it with critical race theory. We've seen it with COVID. We've seen it with vaccinations. We've seen it with um, the bioweapons. All of those really key words are used in, in various ways and have a whole host of meanings that are pretty burdensome at this stage to differentiate between. So why why would someone intentionally organize or start like a disinformation campaign like what what is that how does that look well i think if we like let's take uh russia for example and kind of the way that they have meddled in our social lives here they've really been able to key in on key on social divisions that uh cause a lot of discontent and can really be disruptive in American society. So for example, um, I, you know, my family's still based in Baltimore and um, we had just moved into the city and it was March of 2015. And in April of 2015, Freddie Gray, a young black man was killed at the hands of the police. And this caused um, protests. Many, most of, you know, the, the outcry was peaceful, but there were also some riots in Baltimore, but it was a it was a contentious issue, police mistreatment, um, and kind of the that whole debate sparked up in Baltimore. And when we think about the timing of it, it was 2015, right? So we're getting into the election time frame. But like Maryland's not a swing state. Maryland's, you know, used to be this kind of bellwether of what the federal elections would look like or what the presidential elections would be, because over the past you know, the century prior to this one, I think Maryland only voted for um, the losing candidate in a presidential election three times. So people would look to it as like, hey, if Maryland votes this way, then we're probably going to see that candidate as president. But other than that, it's not an important electoral college state or anything. But Russia was all over this, um, the Freddie Gray murder and um, played on both sides of the fence. They created a count called Blacktivist. And at one point in time, Black this had more followers than the Black Lives Matter proper account. And this Black this account was sharing, you know, local interest stories and, and news interest stories to the Black community in Baltimore. And then on the flip side of the narrative, there was um, a campaign called Back the Badge. And this campaign showed up in over 2 million Facebook ads um, in people's Facebook feeds. And it was really uh, advertising itself as a community of pro-police organizers and people that were, um, you know, the, the blue line um, supporters. And both of those narratives were amplified in this case. So it wasn't that Russia was picking sides. And it wasn't that Russia was like muddling in a state like Pennsylvania, Ohio, one of these bigger, um, or California or Florida, one of the important states to the Electoral College, but they were really creating two narratives that were diametrically opposed to each other. Um, whether or not in reality they are. I think both, you know, care of citizens as well as care of police can go, are not mutually exclusive. But in this case, Russia amplified the ones um, that were inflammatory and it caused a lot of discontent and it even rallied American citizens to get out into the streets. They organized protests. And so this is a foreign actor that is manipulating the American public to get them physically out of their houses and participating in protests and, and, you know, situations with that could potentially turn violent. Um, and to me, that's really, really concerning. And the end game there is destabilization. So you see 
when they play on both sides of the, the fence in terms of a very contentious social issue, they're able to, um, it's like a catalyst uh, for extreme emotions and for people to get really upset and for less dialogue or less constructive dialogue to happen. And destabilization is likely, you know, is a really key goal for disinformation campaigns, I think. You covered a lot there from social media to how how things spread, how to kind of start the, the campaigns. We're picking like a, a topic then amplifying the edges of that to kind of really sow that division. So before we kind of dive into some of those, it sounds like social media, though, really kind of plays a major role in in the spreading of misinformation or, or just disinformation as well as, as a platform. Um, what has your research kind of shown in that or what have you seen in other studies um, about the role that social media plays in um, the spread of misinformation? Yeah, there's um, I was looking for it this morning and I couldn't find it, but there is a statistic that lies spread six times faster than truth. But that's concerning just in and of itself, right? The fact that lies, which tend to be sensational, um, oftentimes are a bit more scandalous. Um, You know, it makes sense in many ways if you just think about it from um, kind of a gossip perspective, I guess, right? Like we all love to gossip. Um, But another really interesting point, all the way back in 1964, Nature Magazine published an article that was about rumors and epidemics, and it looked at epidemiology as a model for um, for the spread of rumors. And obviously 1964 is pre-social media, pre-internet. And, um, but looking at myths and disinformation, um, specifically disinformation as a contagion that can take root in a society. And then those, um, you know, those, the lingering effects of that contagion last for a long time. Um, social media definitely plays a key role because we are so interconnected by it. We've maintained friendships that, um, you know, we haven't seen people from high school in years, and yet we still have connections to them because we see their the photos that they posted, their family vacations and things like that. Um, but it also means that we're in like a lot more um, wide variety of communities. I know that when you think about where you live now and then where you grew up from, most of us, a lot of people still live in the same area where they grew up, but there's also a wide variety of people that have chosen to live in very different places from where they grew up. And so you can imagine that as you go through your own life, everyone else is going through their own lives and their experiences all culminate in kind of who the person is as they age. And so when you bring these people together, all of us together on social media, we create our own types of neighborhoods. Um, We create our own types of, uh, we call them, um, you know, social bubbles in social media. And that allows us to share things pretty rapidly with the increased prevalence of online platforms for information sharing and news. We've also seen an increase uh, in the democratization of information. There is no longer a need to send everything in to the New York Times, Washington Post, um, Washington Examiner, whatever. Um, You don't need that middleman of the media giant to publish something. You can put it out on a blog. We have Substack as a medium where you can kind of publish your own thing. Same with Medium, right? And so the ability for somebody to share ideas the bar to that, the, you know, the level of entry or the barrier to entry is much lower than it has been in the past. 
So we not only have the greater ability to connect with a wide variety of people, but we also have a greater pool of data and information from which to grab things to share to that, you know, that um, the social media space. And so I think those two things together, just the democratization of information and the ability to share things very quickly and with very little repercussion, if it ends up being a false story, um, has combined to make a really fascinating environment to study, but also a place where myths and disinformation are, are easily spread. Well, I know, I, I, I think with some of these, um, you know, the spreading of disinformation or misinformation um, within your own social network, it, it can be hard at times because like when I see a friend of mine, right, like post something, you know, and I trust that person, I'm like, oh, you know, this is interesting when we look at this topic, you know, so I feel like there are a lot of internal, like cognitive, you know, beliefs or factors that kind of come into the spread of this information, because I, I, you know, I may spread something not knowing that it's false, because I believe the person that I received it from is a trusted source, right, um, so how, how do our cognitive factors or personal beliefs kind of come into the spreading of this misinformation or, or disinformation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, cause we are social animals. We like to be around people and we like to be part of a group. So that whole desire, you know, if you think of your friend group at school, it's a lot of fun. Are you guys being at, um, at SEPA at Columbia? I mean, I'm sure there are rich conversations, lots of debates, really good dialogue about some of the toughest problems facing the international community these days. But right, we look at the people that we trust and we look at family members, friends, um, people that we grew up with. We don't expect them to be the ones that are on the fringes of society, right? Or the ones that have um, the capacity to share something that is categorically false or to believe in a conspiracy theory. And um, so there are I think in-grouping is a sociology term that really talks about or really is based around when we're in a group, we like to foster this sense of belonging and we identify people that are in the group and then that are out of the group. And so we can see this playing out in national politics these days, right? Where if, if you fall in one camp, if you fall on one side of the political spectrum, we demonize or we don't like to agree with at all the other side of the political spectrum. And so you create this sense of in-group and the in-group is the group that you align with, your ideas and beliefs kind of align with this in-group. And then the out-group is othered. We've seen this in the past in different instances. So for example, after um, the tragedies of 9-11 and the attacks on the U.S., we saw definite outgrouping of Muslim Americans, right? There was in-grouping. We thought that this was, so we've seen this happen. And I think on smaller micro levels, we do this in social media. If we disagree with someone, we may excommunicate them from our friend group. So I think in-grouping plays a role. Um, Another thing that really, I think, is playing a role in modern, kind of the way that we learn, the way that we um, absorb information is our media diets. So if we have a very diverse media diet, so think about like your mom always told you like eat colorful food or that's what we're supposed to do these days. Cause you get more nutrients. So, you know, you got your spinach, you got your blueberries, you got your raspberries, um, whatever. Um, so a lot of us don't have very good or diverse media diets, meaning that we follow and tend to like to absorb news and media and information 
that really resonates with our current worldview or our beliefs, right? And so when we curate these online environments that we get to exist in on a day-to-day basis, I mean, most of us, I've tried to like, I've gotten, um, this is not a, an advertisement for this company, but I've gotten a lofty, which is an alarm clock that doesn't require my phone so that I have, I wake up and I'm not immediately on my phone and I really like it. Um, but like, oftentimes the first thing that you do when you wake up is you open up your phone and you look on Twitter, or you look on, you know, Instagram or do whatever and figure out what's going on in the world. And, but we create those environments because you choose to follow someone or you don't choose to follow someone. And so the way that I've tried to counter this for myself is to really pick out those people whose views I am opposed to so that I still hear what persons are thinking and postulating and the research that they're doing that doesn't align with kind of what my worldview aligns with. So lack of information diversity, because we seek out information that resonates with us and kind of reaffirms current beliefs that we have is also contributing. Um, And that's a social thing, again, and you can imagine in-grouping and limited information diversity go together, right? Because if your, your social circle thinks the same way that you think, then all of you are going to be absorbing information from potentially limited media environments that all resonate with kind of this self you know, it resonates with your personal biases, it resonates with your personal worldview. And so then that can make the group stronger, right, as we go down these roads. So those are definitely two that I think are really playing a factor in terms of how we are socially, and how mis and disinformation can get lodged. You also just reminded me of a friend of mine who uh, went up to upstate New York region to visit his family. Um, he's prior service, uh, as well. And, you know, so he's traveled around a lot, you know, lived in various locations, but he, we're talking one day and he's telling me how he's like, you know, I intentionally listened to Fox news. Um, because he's like, that's the news station my parents listen to. And I, and when we have conversations, I don't fully understand where they're getting their sources from. So I started doing this, um, so that I could have, you know, better conversations with my family about different issues. And he, you know, he said, it's been very interesting where, you know, they'll start talking on a subject and be like, I'm, I'm pretty different ends. Um, and then based on their conversation, they kind of start moving towards one another where they don't, they don't fully agree yet, but they're, they're starting to say, okay, I at least understand where you're coming from. If, even if I don't agree on what that is, but that, that takes a conscious effort on his, on his part to, to do that. And, and that can be tiring at times as well. It's exhausting. I think, I mean, I'm obviously, I think it's, it is exhausting. Um, And it's one of those things that gets really, really frustrating. And it almost in many ways prevents you from having the good conversations that you need to have um, because it is exhausting. There's one story that I think about uh, a lot. And Anne Applebaum is a writer uh, with The Atlantic who I love. And she wrote, it's a really interesting story about abortion and it really distills both sides of the debate. And on many levels, both sides of the debate of abortion, pro-life, pro-choice have a lot of congruence and it's revolves around very similar um, concerns, which is not what we hear when we talk, when we look at and see uh, news about the abortion debate in public, we see that persons that are pro-life are, um, 
in many cases affiliated with pro-rape or incest, right? And then other people that are pro-choice are murderers. Um, and those types of, again, those words matter. Um, and so those types of, you know, inflammatory uh, conversations and dialogue really, you know, uh, confound or hide or mask the true arguments that both sides, if they were able to tone down the rhetoric or remove the rhetoric, remove the fog of kind of contentious public debate and talk about the issues that revolve around women's health and, um, you know, and unborn children, um, I think that we could have much more productive conversations. And I think listening to Fox News and listening to CNN, like if you open up Fox News and then you open up side by side on your, your desktop or your laptop or whatever, it's it's a really kind of trippy experience because you really see two different worldviews being explained and um and it's and it's fascinating and at the same time very disconcerting and very uh scary but i do think it's important there's a great study out of yale and i'll confide it this morning but it talks about face-to-face conversation and i think when we've been in two years of a pandemic and we have relied so often like us we're talking on zoom right now um to do you know, we've, we've also pushed a lot of it face-to-face interactions to email. And I don't know about you, but every time I try to do sarcasm in an email, it fails or a text message, right? And it's really annoying that we still cannot delete text messages <laughs> when we send one that we regret. But these two researchers out of Yale, like really honed in on the fact that face-to-face conversations around contentious issues, around kind of uh, it, an issue that has two very polarizing stances like abortion um, go further to building bridges or to creating and fostering dialogue and um, getting people to a point where they're willing to engage instead of reject an opposing view, I think is um, a really fascinating approach. We've become so reliant on our technology for both information, how we're informed, um, and how we communicate, that going back to sitting down with someone who has a different perspective than you do becomes, I think, is becoming more and more important. No, I I fully relate to the uh, email and sarcasm at times. Like, I'll ask sometimes, like, my wife, when I get, like, an email from someone, be like, is this person, like, being sassy, rude, passive? Like, what's your take on this? Uh, and it's just very interesting as well. Like I also noticed, like, so like I, I was in the military for 11 years, got out from the reserves. Now I'm in Columbia. Um, but so I'm, I'm older than our average student, I would say. And just sometimes like the way I interpret an email is completely different the way someone else will interpret the exact same email, just based on the age differences as well. So it's, it's fascinating, but we kind of touched on some of these things, about information, like how can it be countered? Um, and you kind of, you know, talked about the face-to-face communication, willing to have conversations. And it reminded, reminded me of, um, I don't remember where I exactly heard this, but I was saying, hey, like, when you're talking with someone, you want to listen to understand, don't listen to respond. And I, and I do feel, especially on social media, we see something we, and we have the option to respond right away. But I do think like maybe a follow-up question, probably outside of social media, uh, is probably the best way for people to, to really engage with that individual um, at times. Because I, I have learned that, you know, sometimes a simple question of like, hey, are you trying to say this or do you really believe this? Usually the person will probably back with like, oh, it was just a joke or 
like, okay, well, why are you sharing this? You understand, like, here's where, how it may come across. And they're like, well, I didn't mean it that way. And you kind of like get down a little bit those further layers. But besides those one-on-one conversations, you know, are there other ways that misinformation can be countered? Yeah, I think we've seen them of late. Um, A lot of people will turn to kind of the way that information about um, COVID-19 has been put out, right? Um, And I think it's been a really difficult challenge for for any administration around the globe to really create a consistent narrative about COVID-19 when it's actually, we're seeing science happen live, if that makes any sense, right? Like that's a fundamentally difficult thing because when you engage in that type of of research about um, a disease, like it evolved, like the information and therefore your knowledge is evolving. And so it's like building your airplane in flight almost. So I think a better example is what we've seen recently with the Biden administration in Ukraine, where um, they've taken a very proactive stance sharing intelligence with the broader community and the public. Um, So with key allies, and then when possible, sharing it with the public in order to pre-bunk is a term meaning like get out in front of a, of a malign narrative or a narrative intended to di- misinform. Um, and so I think that we have seen a pretty awesome example of how a consistent, repeated, and backed in fact narrative can, you know, counter targeted disinformation campaigns or the intent to commit disinformation campaigns. Um, And so this has been really fascinating. And for me, it's been pretty heartwarming because it means that if we are given good information that we can actually counter mis and disinformation by being proactive about it. Because I think there's been lots of questions like we have, you know, I think it's just been a really strange um, evolution of our media environment. And it, and it oftentimes you can get pretty hopeless thinking about um, all of the, the divergent narratives that are existing about, uh, you name it, bioweapons, COVID, all of this stuff. Um, and to think that there may be a systematic approach to um, getting out in front of this. So from what the Biden administration has done, I think consistent messaging is key. The way that China and Russia have been able to research or reinvent or um, kind of repurpose the bioweapons narrative, because it really started um, back with Operation Infection back in the 1980s, where Russia spread disinformation about the AIDS virus coming from Fort Detrick, Maryland. Um, And if you Google Fort Detrick, Maryland today, you're going to see COVID-19 stuff and bioweapon stuff. Um, But they repurposed that messaging. But if you look at Chinese media and state media, there are repeated, consistent, and scripted, I mean, they're very scripted, but so it's repeated and consistent information being put out about U.S. bioweapons. The same message is said multiple times over and over and over again. I went back and had a rabbit hole night where I was up till like three in the morning looking at Chinese state media. And in the course of a month, there were 85, or excuse me, course of six months of um, when first the Wuhan lab um, rumors were being spread to kind of uh, six months after that, there were 85 stories all about U.S. bioweapons and and why isn't the U.S. being investigated. So they're very consistent with their messaging. And I think that's the approach when we have key leaders, when we have respected individuals, 
And when we have persons that people trust, because you've talked about trust before, that are saying and delivering a consistent narrative about something that is going on in the real space, then we are set up better to counter any myths or disinformation surrounding that event that may pop up after or be reactionary to it. Um, so I think having key people that we trust giving consistent narratives um, about information is key. So one thing I've heard though, especially when it comes to like the COVID misinformation is, well, the narrative keeps changing, right? So one side's narrative keeps changing and the other side doesn't. So which side am I going to believe at that point, for instance? Um, and I, you know, I feel like that's almost an individual responsibility um, that we we have though, is to, you know, adjust our views as we kind of intake more information, but we don't. Um, I think it was called the, like the familiarity heuristic, where it's like the story you hear most often is probably the story you're going to believe right or wrong. And please correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. And the one that you hear first, the one that you hear first is going to anchor in your brain and stay there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, I think COVID is a really tricky situation because it is science in action and the messaging has not been consistent and um, we need masks one day. We don't the next. Um, I mean, personally, I think if I ever feel sick again, I'm just going to stick a mask on because I haven't gotten the flu. Um, and it was, I was much healthier when I was wearing masks over the winter, but, um, but that's going to be an ongoing and consistent problem. And so this gets to the individual responsibility part. I don't think we've done a good job with identifying the fact that citizenship and to be a good citizen, quote unquote, of course, good is normative. There's a spectrum. But to be a participating citizen in this democracy, I think we need to add the concept of being a good digital citizen. And, um, you know, there are oftentimes we've had scenarios where we rally behind the flag. So 9-11 is a great one. Um, it, World War II was a great one. Um, in fact, World War II is probably even better because if you can, you can go back and look at the pro, not don't want to say propaganda because it was U.S. kind of the the U.S. campaigns to buy war bonds to um, you know to enlist to be a nurse all of those sorts of things those were like very consistent and they really generated this sense of national pride and people felt like it was their responsibility and at this stage I don't think we've identified dis and misinformation as a key national security threat. Uh, when we think about the military specifically, I do think we need to get on it and make sure that it is, you know, in the next uh, defense strategy, right? Mis and disinformation. It was outlined and detailed um, in the interim national security strategic guidance that was put out by the Biden administration. They mentioned disinformation and, and malign narratives for the first time in a strategic um, in a document that is intended to create strategy. But I think it is a national security concern because there's many ways, you know, we might not be able to get the recruits that we need in order to man our um, armed forces because narratives surrounding military service may change to the extent that the military is no longer seen as a trusted organization or, you know, selfless service is not something that is um, idealized in American society because they see the U.S. military as unworthy of, you know, time. I don't know. 
Um, but we can imagine scenarios where narratives around trusted institutions um, deteriorate. And so this concept of digital citizenship, where a person really takes onus over their information consumption, and um, I think needs to be part of our dialogue. And I think it's something that should be taught in schools. Um, I think, I mean, I know I have a 13 year old, so we've had many conversations about using social media and, you know, I don't think anyone believes everything that's on the internet these days, but, um, but our levels of trustworthy or of trusting information that we find online varies. And uh, I would like to see it, you know, hammered home by the leadership in this country that this is a problem and you as the citizen have a role to play in ensuring that our democracy is safe because at the end of the day just like the Freddie Gray example that I outlined we are going to have foreign actors that want to manipulate narratives that are inflammatory and cause social unrest because destabilizing America is a great way for our adversaries to get ahead. If we can't unite, if we can't rally behind kind of common uh, goals as a country, then we are in a worse place uh, than we have been in the past. No, absolutely. Um, So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but the role of disinformation in military deception operations with like China and Russia, can you kind of expand upon that a little bit? And that could be from an adversary perspective or like our own military operations as well. Yeah, for us, you know, military deception has a very has very specific meanings and um, and can be used in very specific cases. Uh, and so, our authorities, when it comes to deceiving adversaries, there has to be a specific target whose decision we want to influence, right? Um, and so, that's considered that's what we focus on with Mildec, uh, whereas. I think one of the fundamental differences that we're seeing in cyberspace in general is that um, relationships to information differ um, in different countries, right? So we see China and Russia who are authoritarian states and information for the CCP and for um, Putin's government is really seen as a means to control the population. So controlling information is a means to control the worldviews of their people almost. Whereas for the United States, uh, we and Europe in particular, we have access to information is understood almost as a basic human right. Um, there's very, you know, it would be very difficult these days to interact with modern society without connecting to the internet at all. I mean, uh, as a parent, like, I mean, if you want to register for a charter school lottery, you got to do it online. Um, you know, re-registering my vehicle uh, is done online now. Um, so it's so many of the government services, as well as so many of the ways that we interact as society or the ways that we access services are online. Um, and so access to the internet and information is a lot like the reason that public libraries were created, right? It was a, it was a means to give the people access to books and information. And so access to the internet gives you access to information. Those are pretty polar opposites. And we see that at the UN right now. There's the open-ended working group, which is Iran, Russia, China. Um, they're really looking at cyber, so- cyber, yeah, cyber sovereignty, which is an extension of state sovereignty, but into cyberspace. So acts of aggression like Stuxnet, those types of things are viewed by the Iranians in particular as like an act of 
of aggression by one nation state on the sovereignty of another nation state. And so that has implications for what we consider war and acts of war, whereas the other open and or the other working group that's looking at cyber norms is consisting of Western countries who understand the free and open access to information is critical. So when we think about military deception, because we value information, because we value freedom of thought, freedom of speech, I think it's it's a, kind of a tough pill to swallow to consider imparting similar activities like what we've seen take place on the American people by um, Chinese and Russian and other foreign actors missing disinformation campaigns, doing that on another country's population. I mean, it's almost like we're, you know, military deception is, is one thing when it's aligned to a specific military target and you have a specific military decision maker whose mind you want to change and try and force them to make the decision that is most beneficial to you. But when we think about general populations and the ways that our information environment is being polluted by foreign adversaries, um, I think it's it makes me uncomfortable as an American, right? And the fact that I get to have access to a wide variety of information that I can pull to and turn to to better understand the world and the relationships around me. Um, and I think, so I think that makes it a very difficult area to play in as Americans and specifically within thinking about like the Department of Defense. The other problem is we have, like we don't, there's no boundaries in cyberspace. So if we, you know, the, the messages that Russia and China and our adversaries put out, their people also read them too, right? And so that would be similar if they're, if it's out in the world and we're spreading with the intent to misinform a population and their likelihood that American citizens would also interact with that information or misinformation as well. So that's also a concern, I think. It's a fascinating question. There's no, um, I don't think there's any sort of, I don't think we've figured it out yet. It's so confusing and multi-factor. I don't know. There's so many inputs that have to be considered. It's a really, it's a really interesting topic. Uh, It doesn't sound like we're going to figure it out anytime soon though. We are coming up on our time right now, but is there any other information or things you want to talk to our audience about uh, before we kind of wrap up? Is there any place they can follow your work or um, find out more about this that you'd recommend? Yeah, so we um, we have uh, with the Modern War Institute at West Point, the Army Cyber Institute has the Competition in Cyberspace Project. And uh, some of our pieces come out and um, they're kind of national security thought pieces. Um, so I encourage people um, to reach out and, you know, if they have a, a piece that they're thinking about trying to get published, we are an outlet um, dealing with this mis- and disinformation. And then another, I guess my final point would be, is that I do think another way that we can counter mis- and disinformation or disinformation and malinformation specifically targeted campaigns against us by our adversaries is by really making it a purpose in our lives to seek out diversity. Um, And I don't mean like the buzzwordy diversity. I mean, that gets a lot of frowns from people um, because it's an overused word. But I mean, very conscious efforts to seek out information, people, viewpoints, um, places, um, books that are not within your wheelhouse that you are not your regular 
day-to-day interactions because those are the ones that will expand your understanding of the world in a very kind of cheesy kumbaya type um, feeling, uh, you know, or I don't know. But I do think diversity and seeking out diverse individuals, diverse uh, thought think- thought leaders, diverse um, media outlets and all those types of things is one way that you can take a proactive approach to better understanding the world around you and filtering and being able to be resilient to any sort of disinformation that may be coming your way. That's wonderful. Um, thank you so much for being with us here today. And before I forget, do you have any social media or anywhere else, or do you just recommend the Modern War Institute for people to follow you or that work that you guys have been work doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter. I'm Maggie Smith, C-Y-B-R on Twitter. Um, I've been a little dormant as of late, but uh, I will be picking it back up hopefully when I have time. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to hear more from our experts, please share the podcast with your friends and post about it on social media. You can subscribe to a broadcast on Spotify. And if you want to catch all the latest from the Journal of International Affairs at Columbia University, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Columbia JIA.